This is Feminist Talk with Nanda. In this podcast, I will share my feminist thinking and doing through personal storytelling. I hope listening to this will expand your understanding on feminism so that we can all learn that feminism is for everyone. Welcome to Feminist Talk with Nanda. Today we have a very, very special guest with us all the way from South Sudan, Tata Diko Duku Tikaya. Tata is an activist for women's rights and her drive as a feminist comes from fighting for a fair and just South Sudan where everyone can exercise their rights freely and humanity is upheld. She founded the initiative Lady in Action, also known as LIA, a community safe space for young girls in Juba, South Sudan. Currently, she works as the women's coordinator South Sudan Basketball Federation and the chairs, chairs the South Sudan Women Basketball Commission. Tata is also a spoken word artist and a member of youth movements that used art to unite and preach peace in South Sudan. She was nominated for South, South Al Salam Sound of Peace 2019 Awards for People's Choice category. Welcome Tata to Feminist Talk. Again, it's such a nice evening to be talking with you. Uh, could you please introduce yourself in your own words? Thank you, Nanda, for having me in the Feminist Talk. I'm so excited to be part of the podcast. My name is Tata Dikoduku Tikaya. I'm from South Sudan and I'm a feminist activist, an apologetic one, uncensored, uncut. That's me. Yeah, before we talk about like your journey as a feminist, I want to focus on your country itself. You know, South Sudan is a very interesting country, like interesting in a way that I didn't know it existed as a separate country uh, until I met you. You know, I remember when we first met in Canada through a program, we were like, I was so shocked in a very, in a very dumb way. <laughs> that I didn't know that Sudan existed and you and the other from Sudan were there and you guys talked like you know taught me that uh, there's a lot of differences and also a similarity in these two countries and it was a very enlightening movement for me tell us the history of South Sudan and how it became a separate country from Sudan uh, first of all I'd want to mention that South Sudan is a beautiful country it's amazing uh, we are located in the eastern, small of the east of Africa and more to the central, so we are in between. So to the east, we are neighboring Ethiopia. Then to the west, we have Kenya, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Then to the west, we have the Central African Republic. And to the north is the interesting part, that is Sudan. But before I go to the Sudan part, I just want to mention back to the beauty of the country, the fact that uh, we have three gold, that is white gold, uh, green gold, and that is black gold. White gold is the River Nile. Uh, then the green gold is the arable land that we have, most especially the western side of the country. It's very rich uh, with the vegetarian land, land where we can do farming. And then we have the black gold and that, that's the oil. And we like to say it's more of a blessing and it's also a curse at the same time. 
and back to our neighbor in the north, Sudan. We were part of Sudan, and that is, uh, we were part of Sudan, and Sudan gained its independence in 1956 from the British. But as the South Sudan then were being referred to as the Southern Sudanese, and our region was referred to as the Southern Sudan. And as the Southern Sudanese, we went through a lot of oppression coming from the government, which was North-centered in the North, Khartoum-based. Uh, there was a lot of marginalization in terms of politics and economics. And because of this, uh, we as the Southerners wanted to fight for our freedom. And because of that, we had two long civil wars. The first one was in 1955 to 1972. Then we had a decade of not war, but it doesn't mean we had peace. Then another one from 1985 to 2005. Uh, and all these wars is what led to us getting our liberation from Sudan and becoming a sovereign state, the Republic of South Sudan in July 9th in 2011. And that was the most exciting moment for me and for many other South Sudanese. And the pride that just was being called a South Sudanese. Wow, that's quite an interesting history of becoming South Sudan. And I was, you know, you told in the in, in earlier that uh, your country went through uh, internal conflicts um, several times, you know, from 19 to like 20th century, right? And what was it like for you? Like, you know, I know you were displaced for a while uh, from your country. You were outside of the country uh, to seek for basic need or just to be safe, you know? What was that experience like? And when did you uh, leave South Sudan for a while during the war? And when did you come back? And what was the experience like living in, in a foreign country? Okay, so the, the second war, when we were still part of Sudan, that was in 1983 to 2005, that, that contributed to us being a sovereign state. That was the time I was also born. So because of that war, I was not born in my motherland. I was born in a foreign country, and that is Kenya. Then uh, when we became a sovereign state, I was still in Kenya. I'd still not come to South Sudan. So at that time, I was still in my grad school. Uh, unfortunately, uh, despite the fact that we had our independence now as South Sudan, we again broke into another conflict, a very brutal armed conflict. And this time was amongst us, the Southerners, where we had the two main ethnic groups, that is the Dinka and the Nuer, who were clashing. And it was a very brutal uh, war. And many people died, and there was a lot of human rights uh, defilation of, of, of rights. And at that time, I was still, oh, I'd come, I'd come to South Sudan now. Then after, after, after a few months later is when the war broke out. And now with the war, when it broke out, it went until 2015, until 2015 when there was a cessation of. Of, of arms where there was ceasefire, where there was ceasefire and the situation was come and the signing of the peace agreement that was in 2015. Then again, shortly, 
we again had a, a second civil war that was in 2016 and uh after after that we had the peace signing on in 2018 so basically it is unfortunate that when you are telling the history of south sudan you can't not mention war that is the unfortunate part of it that war will always have to come up and currently as south sudan we are in a transition period we were the transition period was to be for a short time, but it has prolonged due to the two civil wars that we've had. But currently, the situation is better off. Currently, in South Sudan, we don't hear guns, but the fact that we don't hear guns doesn't mean that there is peace. Uh, outside other states, outside other states, it's different. The, it's not the same as in Juba. In Juba, we are safe, we are secured, let me say that in quotes, but outside that is not the case, despite the fact that we have the revitalized agreement on the resolution of conflict in South Sudan. Then to my experience as a refugee, uh, I was an urban refugee back in Kenya. An urban refugee meant that I wasn't in a camp, I was just, uh, I had the status, the, the refugee status, so I was in town. And for you to be an urban refugee, you, you are supposed to be able to, to, to sustain yourself. Because if you can't sustain yourself, then you have to go back to the camp. But then in my younger years, there's a time, because we were raised by a single mom, my siblings and I, my six siblings and I, by a single mom, there was a time when we had to go to the camp and we went to Kakuma refugee camp in the northern part of Kenya. My experience there was really devastating. First, I appreciate the fact that I had security. I was in a secure environment as opposed to if I was back in my motherland and being in that environment, an enabling environment to grow like any other child, like a normal child, I was able to get opportunities like education, which would not have, might not have been the case if I was back in my country where it was the battlefield. So. In Kakuma, I remember there were different residents and we have many refugees from various countries, from Somali, from Congo, from Rwanda. We were all in that refugee camp and we were divided. And by the time we went, we, we were put in a section where victims of violence were brought, like the injured soldiers. So it was my first time to see people with amputated limbs like hands or, or, or legs, and they were wearing plastic legs. And for me, as a kid at that point, well, it showed me, it brought me the reality of what war does. Like the reality dawned on me. Before being a refugee, yes, I knew my country is going through a lot, and I would try to connect it to when I'm watching action movies and be like, so this is what is happening. I used to hear, but right now I was seeing it firsthand and it was, it was so sad being a kid and seeing them. I used to get so emotional and cry at times. And these were people who were brought in like after two weeks or weekly, a lorry would come and they'll be brought and then they'll be taken to the hospital. And so it wasn't that, good of an experience as a child and back to the urban as an urban refugee my experience as an urban refugee the fact that you'll always be reminded that 
you don't belong, that you're an alien. And this happens when you just walk in the streets and people will just start calling you names like refugee, but I didn't say, okay, yeah, fine, I'm, it's true, I'm refugee, but when they start telling you things like, go back to your country, it's when it, there was, at that point, they would think it was barely a word, but for you as a refugee, it really hurts because you, you go back and there's sounds ring back in your mind and it's like, go back. And of course you want to be back in your country, but circumstances can't allow you. So such words were harsh words that people just said it when they see you and they see you look different and they tell you all these negative things. And also the fact that not be, being a foreigner in a foreign country, being a foreigner, walking in the streets, it's not the same as the native. Walking in the streets, you always have to make sure you're on the right, because if you're on the wrong, and you're a refugee, it's a different story. And even at times when your documents are not right or you're not working with your documents, you see the police, you just like, oh my, what will happen when they get me? So it wasn't really living with freedom. It was living just because you have to live maybe. And I really longed to be back to my country. And now being in South Sudan is the best thing for me. My country is not a tourist destination for many, but for me, it's my country and it's my responsibility to make it that country that I hope it will one day be. Yeah, and listening to you made me think a lot about like, you know, people like who have to live with war every day. And I think when it comes to war, there are two things that I wanna just, I, I visualize. One is the war that we, the war or the pain of the war that we can uh, see visual like you know literally like we can see people are dying broke with broken legs or like so many other things but i also think that there's war that is inside of us like for example you didn't have to go to the war but because of that war there's impact it it's it's sort of like you said, it's like sort of even like a scar, a bad reminder that just come back to you every time, even though you don't, you want to forget it, you know? And I think that's also very important to address on the table when it comes to peace dialogue. And, you know, Yemen is also a country with ongoing wars going on, especially like where I grew up, Shan State, it's like, why is something you just casually talk about every day? It's like, oh, the why is happening there, here, there. And like, people don't really take serious anymore because they have normalized that pain. They have normalized that fear. And it's just so sad to see that even in the midst of this pandemic, I remember two days ago, my mom told me that, oh, there's a war going on at the back of our um uh, lens and I was like why are you so casual about it because even though when I was growing up I was like her but now that I have experienced a peaceful uh, environment I've come to know that we can do better and we have to do better why is not something that's normal you know and and, and I was wondering while you we were speaking you were born in refugee camp you, so were you able to obtain like basic legal documents when you return to South Sudan? Okay. I wasn't born in the camp since I mentioned I was an urban refugee. So I was just born in Nairobi, but with the status of a refugee, with the status of a refugee. Then later in my years is 
at some point we went to the refugee camp and came back to the to the city and uh, coming back to South Sudan since you were a new country now everyone had to come back and now get the new identification because before our passports would read Sudan that was my father and mother was Sudan but now we are South Sudan so it was everyone literally coming back and just saying yes and just proving that you are South Sudanese maybe through your elder your elders saying where your village is just a, you need to prove that you're South Sudan then you get the nationality well pretty simple actually because I'm asking that because in Myanmar even as an ethnic minority when you are trying to get an ID or any legal document you must let's just say for ID right now, you must have three generational documents. Like where can I find, especially someone who grew up with in the midst of war, your documents are like burned every single month or week. Whenever the wars want to start, they start and you just have to run with what you can or sometimes you just, you run without anything in your hands. And for those people, it's so sad that they they're required to find those three generational documents just to get an ID. It's like so sad to see the system have been really um, not, how do I say, not easy or not simple for the citizen. It's just so sad. Now, I really wanna talk about your work, your career, what you're doing after, I know that after you came back from um, uh, Kenya, you started being really focused on your career, your education, and you were very empowered woman because you have a mission now because you're back to your country. You wanted to do something for your country. Tell us your, about your organization, uh, Lady in Action, also known as Leah, why and how you started it. So, I, I'm not so sure where to begin. I'm trying to find a balance. Should I start with Leah or should I just start with when I came back? So I think I'll start with when I came back. So when I came back, I came with all the spirits, you know, the spirit of, oh, I graduated. I have these good papers. I'm going to get this billion dollar white collar job, you know. And that was not the case after applying and applying for a million jobs and not getting any response gets you thinking and in the midst of that is when now I was getting the reality of what it means to be a South Sudanese what it means to be a South Sudanese or I would walk in the streets and just like you mentioned it we've casualized injustice like it's okay like that is how life is you know we've accepted all this and for me now, because now I'm the outsider, now when I come in, I see this. They can't see this because that has become their normal. But me, when I come, I know it is not okay. So I was not fine with so many things. And I would go home, I'd get so frustrated, I would share with my sisters, why, with my sister, why is this happening? It's not supposed to be like, like it was always about that. And also the emotional turmoil that it had on me was a lot because I'm one person, if I see a need, I want to address that need. As long as I've seen it, I want to be able to address it. But now I'm in a situation where I can't do anything about it. And it really got on me. And now I normally share this experience as one of my lowest times. The reason being, 
I was seeing so much need and the fact that I can't do anything about it. It's really, it was killing me slowly until the moment I came to resort to myself and have that moment with myself and, and appreciate what I have. And what I had then was my good health, my talent that was uh, playing basketball and, and poetry. And, and, and I believe in God and God as well. So those were my strengths. And from that point, I started trying to see how I can use that to bring change. And change doesn't have to be big. I don't have to wake up in the morning and have changed the government. And we have a government that is so caring about the people, a government for the people, a government that is bringing development. No, no, no. It starts with you changing mindset. And when 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 I valued that, when I saw the value in that small change on one person, that's how my activism changed. Because now I wasn't centered on the bigger picture, which is the whole country, but I was centered on an individual, just bringing change to that one person and that person to another. And we transcend slowly. And fortunately, years to come, the story would be different, but it started from that small step. So for my case, like I said, applying. So this time I applied for something else different. This time it wasn't a job, but it was an application to a leadership program. So when I was going through the questions, it actually seemed easy. And I was like, this is something I can do. I can do, I can do, I failed it. I applied and I got selected and it was um, one of my turning points and one of the follow up uh, action plans we were told to come up with our action plans and it, we, through the training I was able to know yeah this is how this is what you can do this is how it gave me the strategies and that is how I came up with Lady in Action and Lady in Action as you mentioned earlier is a community safe space for young girls why did I choose girls because I don't know so many things but I know what it is to be a young girl and I remember being that girl and having to fight so many things to be the woman I am. And I thank God that I had people to encourage me or the resources or the exposure that has made me who I am that other girls don't have. And now knowing that I had that, I need now to do the same for other young girls. Because to me, teenagehood is a very critical age in womanhood. It's one that will either make you or break you. And even right now in South Sudan, they're talking about women representation. We want women in this, we want women as leaders. But the question is, do the women themselves also want to take up leadership roles? Because now, since they were young, they've been conditioned to be subordinate. They were never taught to be a leader. Then when they grow up, you expect to have more women in political spaces, in leadership spaces. But from the start, you didn't tell them, girl, you can be a president. All they had is you can be a very good mother. But now this space is where we are giving the girls tools that help them. It is them to realize what they want to be. And then after they realize that, it is now us to mentor them to be that that they want to be. Thank you. I totally agree with you because while you were speaking about how, you know, especially girls are very, 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 very vulnerable group in, in the society because at this 
very age in the like adolescent age, let's just say that they are told to be nice to the people around them. And even when they are being harassed or sexually assaulted, they cannot talk about it because they want to be nice. And nice is the only biggest lesson that we as a whole society teach girls. And that is very dangerous to so many levels. Like I remember be, being a young girl when you're talking about lady in action and girls needing safe space. I think that is true because when I was in the teenage um, um, phase, I didn't have any sort of space or community where I could go and express my feelings or my fears or my needs basically, you know? And because of that reason, you and I, people like us, we need to learn those things through experience. I think by being heard, by being gone through a very bad experience, and I think we can prevent those from happening to girls, you know? And that the, the way to do it is through education. We have to empower them. We need to give them safe space to express themselves, to, to know themselves, to really understand their needs and rights, you know, all these things. And I think that's very crucial what you're doing and I kudos that. And I I wanna ask what have you been doing during this COVID-19? Because with Purple Feminist Group, as you know, due to COVID-19, we have restriction with traveling, we have not gone anywhere. Everything so far is happening online. And it's really, really tiring sometimes to just spend so much time on screen and just giving the, 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 the education that we've been giving for over the past two years. What, what is your experience during COVID-19? So during the COVID-19, like I mentioned earlier, uh, I work with girls and mostly since I've just started, I normally go to school. And when the COVID-19 pandemic started, there was the lockdown of school. And now that meant not being able to go and have access to do my mentorship programs with the girls. And also the fact that mobility was hindered. And also our infrastructure is not as advanced. We, are, we still, it's electricity, not all houses have electricity. Electricity is just in Juba, not all houses have it the luxury of internet we don't have. So there was no way you would do your online mentorship. So literally it was like a cutoff. It was a cutoff. And for me, it was really a time to re-strategize and see how can this still be sustainable? How can we still be, how can Lady in Action still be progressive? And then is when we, I was able to work, partner with other organizations and do outreach programs. Now in the outreach programs, uh, we go to the communities and provide them uh, with uh, awareness. In the beginning, the first phase when the COVID happened, because no one knew what, what is happening. And people had all these sorts of myths about Corona and how to protect yourself, how to prevent yourself. And now what was needed at that point was uh, correct information about the, 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 the coronavirus and how to protect yourself. So in the first phases, it was more of creating awareness. 
And then as months continued with the lockdown and everything, we started witnessing a lot of sexually gender-based violence cases being reported. And now we even had a lot of uh, early pregnancy, early teenage pregnancies. And that is then also the question of now parenthood, because previously the parenting was just left for school and for other organizations or initiatives like mine to, to talk to the girls. But now that none of these institutions have a link to the girls, and it's now solemnly the parents who literally didn't take up that responsibility, we start seeing a lot of early teenage pregnancies. And now, to add on now the outreach, now as much as we were doing outreaches, we were now uh, educating people to live together in peace because we understand that with Corona came a lot of issues like uh, the economic, the economic, the people were affected economically where people lost their jobs or the income became less and the demand in the house was still up or even twice as much as before. And even you find household violence, domestic violence increased and, and girls being confined. And in, we normally say when you come to rape, it is normally the inside people who are mostly the, the rapists or the culprits. And now most girls were, were more cases have been reported during this period of COVID-19, more cases have been recorded. And now as we're doing our outreach, we've added a part where we counsel people in the house and also we offer different organizations now are offering uh, toll numbers where you can reach and uh, you'll come and get assistance. And then just to point out on something you mentioned earlier, that uh, girls are very vulnerable. Yes, they are very vulnerable. And basically, back in South Sudan, they are, girls are very vulnerable. First, because of our cultural ways, we have some some of our cultural practices are promoting to this, where we have early child marriages, early forced child marriages, and here we here we will talk about the bride prize. Now we have. Uh, the bride price being set according to your physique, what they call beautiful, and those who fall in the category of beauty will be traded or beaded off at higher prices. Where we have girls who are taller than six, six, six feet or six, five and above feet, who will be beaded for more than five hundred cows and above. You know, we also and 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 you'll find this girl don't have any consent there is no matter of consent. And one of the things that still contributes to this goes back to even our constitution itself. Our constitution still doesn't, doesn't help end this in, in South Sudan. For instance, in the constitution, it just says that marriageable age, but it doesn't define what marriageable age is. So without that definition of what age is marriageable, we end up relying on the customary laws. And in the customary laws, it says for customary laws, as soon as the girl gets the menses, they're as soon as being a bride, they're old enough to be a bride. So what if she starts at nine years, at 14 years? So you see, like when you don't have a legal backup to end this, it becomes a challenge and girls, their future is destroyed at a very early age because of this. 
support at early marriages. And also still in the pandemic, we've had reports. Now these are the reported ones. Now you can imagine the ones that are not reported. Uh, it was reported a case of a girl who refused to get married. This was going online and on radio and TV. She refused to get married and she was beaten up by the brothers until she died because the, the brothers wanted a suitor who had more money than the suitor the girl wanted for herself. There was even another case of a girl who refused to get married and she was locked up in a house with a gun inside and told, kill yourself if you don't want to get married until an intervention from the CBOs in that state came for me. So this is just to show you how vulnerable these young girls are. Yeah, that's true. And you know, regarding the legal protection is being, being very weak is also uh, a frustration to me as well. You know, in Myanmar as well, we literally do not have any particular law that can protect or take action towards this kind of gender-based violence, you know, and it just puts you in a lot of question mark that if this country is designed for women or to, to, for women to live peacefully, you know? And regarding rape, actually in Myanmar also, there's a, there's a clause where it says that rape can consider only when there's a penetration between a vagina and a penis. Other than that, what about other things that are oral and there are certain things that puts a lot of uh, objects inside a vagina, you know? And what about men raping men, you know? Like these are the things that we need to consider while making law. And speaking of which, you know, and I was even talking to a, um, uh, someone who is an expert in law and she explained it to me that <laughs> when you're doing like, you know, let's just say you're writing, an, uh, writing a clause or an article to prevent violence against women and you pass the stage from parliament to other, other states and the final stage to approve this law that you um, propose is going to be a very, very experienced person. And in Myanmar law, that experienced person that has to be 20 years of experience. So imagine you study for like 35 years to 40 years. Up until then, you have to have experience of working in laws for 20 years. And then you will be like 65 years old dude with cigarette and alcohol in his body who doesn't really give a fuck about women's issue. You know what I mean? So it makes sense that these kind of law are just old as a dude. I'm like, like, like so frustrated just to kind of think it out loud, you know. Let's talk about some fun part. You are a spoken word artist, spoken word poet. Uh, why, what it, like, what's your relationship with um, poetry? You know, for example, for me, well, for example, actually me, I'm someone who loves and enjoy poetry. Uh, I remember, I don't know if you remember, I think you do. When we were in Canada, we were just sitting and talking about poetry for hours and hours. And you share the love for poetry as I do. And in my free time as well, I listen to poetry more than I listen to music. It helps me make sense of the world around me or the people around me, you know. 
Tell me about your relationship with poetry and why are you a spoken word poet? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. So for the longest time, I just I just say I just go to the mic and speak what I speak, you know. But people would say, Ah, you're a spoken, you're a beautiful boy, you're a good boy. <laughs> So yes, I write because I'm compelled. I write because I'm compelled. So by that, it means I'm the type of poet that you tell, do for me a piece. You can write for me a piece. I won't write that piece. I only write when I feel there's, I just feel there's something that needs to be written and I find myself writing and reciting. So I write, based on my experience of what I see, what I feel, what I hear, what I hope for, what I want things to be, that is what I write. And for uh, most of the time when I narrate poems, people tell me, oh, you spoke about, you, you spoke about what I've been wanting to say, or well, you were just talking to me, or I relate to that, because most of the time, these are things that go unnoticed that we just let it be, you know, and then you come here and find someone saying it. Oh, these are things that we just want to forget about, but we have to say it. So now, for me, that has become poetry. And I always like to say that I speak for, it is the only way for me to release the energy that is from the inside. I get at times you won't like it, it it's like irritating you like it's overwhelming you and then you just when you when you recite it you feel oh it's gone like it's gone <laughs> exactly do you have a poem that you want to share today with us we would love to hear it uh i would love to share since I'm sure most of the audience are, will be new people. So let me just share a piece that uh, resonates with who I am and what poetry is to me. And the piece is called Pieces of Peace. Enjoy. <laughs> Ain't just words, not a series of lines, it's a story. An overflow of my fears, feelings, emotions, memories, visions. This piece is a piece of me. And my piece is who I really am. Seeking peace to finally self-express beauty. But the paper is blank. You know, having nothing to write means something too. Do they know so? All I ever wanted was to write comic poems, living sweet memories in lips expression. I have no such words. Heart broke, limbs chained, eyes, ears, mouth closed, brainwashed. They took my peace. I feel no more. I write no more. I am no poet. All I ever wanted was to make you happy, get you high in laughter to a climax where you can't breathe. And my words have taken control of your body, mind, and soul, tickling all the way to the heart, haha, <laughs> begging me to stop, for you've had too much of my dose descending from, from paradise or cloud nine if it exists. No more brainstorming or patching. Just wanted to be Superman in a Mr. Bean kind of way. 
bailing you from your daily routine, from the consistent breaking news economy, this bloody. I just couldn't, can't find my peace. Happiness will never be my subject. You don't find your subject, it finds you. It found me in grief, sorrow, tears, anything but peace. So I write pieces of me I never tell. Maybe it's the fear of being bruised by the public. For I know the price of a lost peace and I'm paying pieces no more. So it's just me till I find my peace and make you die of laughter. And my purpose is fulfilled and I claim the crown. That was really beautiful, Tata. I want to ask you, like, maybe, you know, just tell us how you relate with this poem. Like, how is it connected with you? Uh, this poem, to begin with, is one of the, my very, very first poems since I started performing on stage, because previously, before I came, my first time to perform was in South Sudan. Previously, I had never performed. I just used to be, I would go for open mics because of course I enjoy poetry, I enjoy spoken words. Then coming back to South Sudan with all, now I was experiencing a lot of things. And of course there was no way all that energy would be inside. So I went on the stage and my first piece was called Woman of War. And uh, that poem was generally about the women I would see every day as I walk to the market or in the streets, I would see them. And being raised with a single mom as well as many other South Sudanese because our dads were out either in the as part of the war or basically looking for means to, to, to sustain their families. And in that poem, I spoke when I, when after I performed it, I felt like I told them, I felt like I was telling the women, I told them, they now know about it. And, and since then, I've, I, now the audience, I want also to thank my audience. They gave me so much love and they gave me, they allowed me to, to share. Before sharing was so hard for me because I felt very vulnerable. I felt like I'm being exposed. I felt like I'm undressing because most of the things that I was talking about were things that people don't talk about. Then you go and talk about it. So I, but the love that and support that people gave me made gave me that gave me the confidence, gave me that oomph to just go to the stage. And now writing pieces of peace is I I, I wrote it as a way to tell people because now at that time many people wanted to listen to me. People would come and they would be like, I'm waiting for Tata. But I just wanted to communicate something to them. I wanted to tell them that I didn't want to write this. Until today, I, I wish I would recite a poem and after that people are laughing, but every time I recite a poem, people are crying. Maybe I also cried as I was performing, but I didn't want it to be like that, but it will never be like that. If I want it to be a happy poem, it will only be that until happiness is what I see 
is what I experience, is what I hear, is what I feel every day that I will make them smile. No, when you're talking about like, you know, being unable to write happy poetry, it makes sense, you know, the world for women is not full of happiness as people think. You know? I remember, I'm not a poet, but sometimes I do write poems just to let my feelings to get out there, you know? And I remember when um, my friend read it, they, they would say that, why are your poem, all of your poem, so sad, like so sad. You don't look like you're sad, right? Why are you sad? Like, this is what I say, the inner war is not, you cannot see them all the time, you know? So it's inside of us. So I was remembering the, those words as you were saying about unhappy poem or sad poem. Or I think an, another thing about what you said is vulnerability is a very important thing. And I think in most poem, we find it, we find vulnerability in some way or the other, whether it's a happy or sad poem, you know? And it's the experience you had about, um, you know, being scared of vulnerability. I get that because I remember when we were doing the Dana monologue for the first time, it's not even my play, you know, it was written stories of women all over the wall. It's nothing to do with me, but because it's so, so real and so authentic and so true, when you are representing those stories, you are also a part of the, 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 the person that carries that pain, you know, and when you are doing that, you're like so uncertain, is this something that I should do or am I capable of being vulnerable in the public, you know? It's being alone and being with the loved one and being vulnerable is fine. But I think when we are there to being vulnerable, as soon as we are vulnerable, we realize that there's an empowerment within being vulnerable, no? Like, and I think that's an important lesson that I learned being like out there with them with this play and i think art has a very specific unique way of connecting people by also being vulnerable at the same time and i think that's the beauty to it you've been very great tata thank you very much for being here i just want to ask you as a last question what would you like to give message to the young girls who are struggling to express themselves or be themselves in the like in the and who are carrying the burden of being a good girl by the society like the burden that the society gives them to be a good girl like what would you want to tell to them first and foremost the fact that you're you you you've reached where you are right now Kudu, and it's okay not to be okay it is okay to be the different one. It's okay to be so many things that is not accepted. And that's the beauty of it. And my advice is get to know who you are. And how do you get to know who you are? Is by you knowing what is that thing that makes me happy? What is that thing that makes me mad? What is those things that I've done? that are good, what are those things that I've done that are not okay? Getting that time alone to just know who you are and 
this journey of knowing who you are, trust me, you will always be on it. Every day I'm learning something new about myself. And each time I learn something new, I make sure I unlearn that bad thing. So it is going to be a continuous process. Just because I know myself, it doesn't end here today. I do it every single day. I know myself every single day. And you should start this journey of knowing who you are. And by, by saying so, you you will know that end thing that you want. What, what is the thing that I want to become and be that thing? Don't, don't say, I want to be a doctor. No, be the doctor. If you want to be the doctor, be the doctor today. For instance, a doctor, you really have to have high grades. So what are you doing? You won't be getting low grades. No, a doctor gets good grades. If you want to be a singer, a singer, you have to practice on your vocals and stuff, start doing. So whatever you want to be, be it right now. And you will always win, trust me, you will always win. So my advice for you is find that person. Find that person at all costs. And we are not giving up. It's never an option. Thank you. I love it. I think what you just said is like two things that very, very are important to me as well. One is that if you want something or if you want to be something, act on it. Don't just say it. And the second thing you said about how developing yourself and being better served is an important, it's a process. It's There's no end to it. You you can be a better serve every single day. I'd like to think as people as a software, you know, there's always an up upgrade version of it. So think of yourself as a, as a software or just as a person as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for your wise word, Tata. You've been so great. Thank you for being with me here. It's such a pleasure talking to you. Every time we talk, I have so much to learn from you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. And thank you so much for the great work that you're doing. When I grow up, I want to be like Nanda. Thank you so much. And congratulations. Thank you. For, for making it to the top 100 influential women. Thank you so much. Oh, <laughs> Thank you, thank you, oh my God.